Do you believe in the existence of witches? Ah, I have known some women who are said to be witches. Really? I've studied the phenomenon for a long time. I am of the opinion that it is an important appendage of contemporary psychiatry. You're skeptical, my dear. Well, frankly, it is a little hard to believe. What do witches do? They are malefic, negative and destructive. Their knowledge of the art of the occult gives them tremendous powers. They can change the course of events in people's lives, but only to do harm. You don't believe me? No, I... Their goal is to accumulate great personal wealth, but that can only be achieved by injury to others. They can cause suffering, sickness, and even the death of those who, for whatever reason, have offended them. Why do you have all this interest in the occult? Because some friends spoke to me about witches. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 15, which is Cole's choice, so what do you have for us? I have for us, since we haven't discussed a horror film in the last 10 minutes or so, Suspiria from 1977, directed by Dario Argento, starring Jessica Harper, Alita Valley, Joan Bennett, a dashing young Udo Kier, and featuring one of the greatest, most distinctive scores in the history of cinema, horror or otherwise, by Goblin. We should also make special mention of the fantastic work by cinematographer Luciano Tavoli, because without him, this would not be nearly as fantastic as it is. It's the first entry in Argento's Three Mothers trilogy, along with Inferno and The Mother of Tears. What is Suspiria about? It is about Susie Banyan, a young American who arrives at a prestigious German dance academy to discover that it is run by a sinister coven of homicidal witches. A classic trio of weird sisters, these witches are. It's sort of a folktale, fairy tale narrative, you could say. The way it's structured, the naive newcomer undergoes a trial. A trial that is so hyper-stylized as to be unreal, which puts it into that fairy tale realm. And the logic is just the logic of a nightmare. It is complete sensory overload. And that sensory overload begins right at the very outset with the score that I mentioned, because it is immediately a wall of discordant rumbling and sinister whispers. Whispers that actually give away the plot. Full disclosure, not if you're a big dummy like me, because I still didn't really hear them say, which. When I was reading about the film, that's when I realized that oh, you they were... I didn't... You didn't I, understand I didn't, what they were saying? I didn't know. Well, then it was a great surprise for you still. It was. Fantastic. I love that fat, heavy bass in the score. Love that. Where it sounds like the drum was out in the rain and left overnight. In MacArthur Park? Yeah. There is cake, too. Okay, we're getting, we're getting off topic, though. 
So anyway, you have these rumblings and ominous whispers that are setting up this auditory environment for you that immediately puts you off balance. And there's also a one-line opening narration. And we never hear from the narrator again. But it sets up this odd premise, if you're a first-time viewer, that this is Susie Banyan, this is how she arrived here, this is where she's going. No other film really sets out to do that. I think that fits perfectly in with the fairy tale theme of it, because to me, that little tiny bit of intro narration would be the gilded illustrated page that says once upon a time Mm -hmm. and launches you into the story and the story begins as nightmare hellscapes often do at the airport true this is when we first meet Susie. so she is coming off of the plane and is entering immediately this crazy rain and windswept nightmare world where she's attempting to flag down a taxi And then she gets in the taxi and asks for what I thought was Escherstrasse, which made a lot of sense to me later because I thought of the artist Escher. Because there's so many artistic elements in the set design that would make sense for that. Or possibly she's asking for Escherstrasse, and we see Escher written on the wall much, much later. But anyway, we don't know where she's going. It's confusing from the beginning. No one seems to want to help her get to where she's trying to go. Right. It immediately sets up this theme of miscommunication. It's in the taxi scene that I first noticed something interesting. I had happened to use the freeze frame feature on the remote, and I then employed it throughout the film. I was watching it by myself, actually, so I had the chance to stop at different moments, and I discovered that's when you really see these odd, discordant pops of color. And it changes from frame to frame, so it's something really fun to look out for. You see a red, then you see a green, then you see a blue and a gold, and how that shifts with different perspectives. That's interesting. So each paused frame potentially generates a completely different mood rather than the sensory overload of that swirling, kaleidoscopic, nonstop assault of color and a different place for you to look and it's like for me taking that three strip technicolor and at one point seeing red and then blue and then green like when I was a kid did you have one of those old TVs where if you got really close to it you could see all the little dots of color it feels like that so continuing with the fairy tale theme we're now taking a trip through the forest essentially in the taxi to arrive at the school where we see a woman who sort of echoes the woman we saw through the door of the airport being whipped around by the storm. This woman saying something that's unintelligible to us and then running off into the rain. Susie then tries to gain admittance to the school and is turned away, so it's back into the taxi, back through the forest, as her trip takes her parallel to the young woman we saw who is now running through the forest. And another oddity... We then don't see Susie again for a while. We completely change perspective and story, and we start to follow the woman, the mysterious woman, who is running through the forest. Which gets us to our first major set piece. So this woman, who we eventually learn is Pat, arrives at a friend's apartment. And for the first time, we see 
these crazy interiors. An apartment like none I've ever seen, in the best possible way. Right. And Pat is extremely agitated, and she won't tell her friend what's going on, why she's so scared, what's supposed to be happening. She feels that something's coming for her, and she starts looking out the window, constantly looking out the window, and does she hear something? Does she see something? She's right. Something is coming for her. It is. Which is made obvious by this really interesting change in perspective. All of a sudden, the point of view shifts to far outside of the apartment. In fact, it feels like maybe even across on the roof of the next apartment before it begins this push into the window. So it's obvious there is a watcher. There is something out there in the darkness that is here to dispatch her. And she picks up the lamp to try to see more clearly out the window. This is something that recurs later on. There are mirrors and windows and reflections that are not accurate or don't help us see any better. Right. This theme of vision and seekers being punished shows up again and again, especially in these central murder set pieces. For instance, when she leans up to the window with lamp in hand, all that the light does is make it harder for her to see, it seems like. It casts her own reflection back at her and does not illuminate anything she's trying to see outside. It makes her easier to be seen. Right. And soon killed. Which is one of the most unnerving scenes for me, still, that I've seen in all of the hundreds, maybe thousands of horror films I've ever seen. Why is that? The glass, I think, is what gets to me the most. When that arm comes through the window and the brutality of grabbing her by the back of the head and pushing her face against the window until the window eventually gives way is a kind of violence you don't often see in horror movies, slasher films. Dario Argento has a real aptitude for artfully and imaginatively rendered violence that makes it resonate with you and makes it extremely memorable. Even though it's so stylized. Hyper-stylized. Mm-hmm. And that's just the beginning of the brutality oh, sure. for Pat. That's step one. <laughs> that's the easy part. So she's pushed through the window, and then comes a series of repeated stabbings, including one directly into her now exposed heart. Yes. Happy Valentine's Day, mm, Thank by you, the way. honey. You stab me through the heart every day. <laughs> and that's not a euphemism. And that's not... That's not <laughs> Oh, not the part about you stabbing me. Sorry. The the actual murder in the film. <laughs> we see the chest cavity open. We see the beating heart. And we see the knife go in the beating heart. It's pretty awesome. And as if that weren't enough, then we move on to the stained glass in the roof of the building. And the improvised hanging that takes place. We're left with her hanging from this very long drop. We see the stained glass, the beautiful stained glass on the floor below her. The stabbing through the beating heart is the part that resonates with me. Why is it that the glass is the thing that you focus on? The stabbing through the beating heart seems so unreal to me, obviously. And the glass, I think, bothers me more because it's so readily accessible. It's such a common 
object. It's everywhere. It's in our houses. It's in our cars. It would be easy to have that happen in much the same way that we don't get as scared of supernatural things because we don't necessarily give them credence. They don't exist in the world as we understand it. And the thing that is much more frightening is the killer next door. Same sort of thing. Glass is such a common object and yet still such an uncommon murder weapon that it leaves me with a sick feeling when I see those scenes. So Pat has been horribly, disgustingly, glassily murdered. And her friend as well, accidentally. Oh gosh, I forgot about that. <laughs> was, was, did I have a glass eye in when I watched this and I only got half of the film? I, I don't know. Or I saw what I wanted to see? Huh. That's for our psychology podcast, I guess. Okay. Okay. They're both murdered. And then uh, it's a brand new day and Susie is back at the school. So Susie arrives at the school and she meets the faculty, Miss Tanner, played by Alita Valley, and Madame Blanc, played by Joan Bennett, in addition to the other dancers, the other girls who are studying at the academy. And I was struck by how awkward every interaction is between her and her potential teachers and fellow students and staff at the school. Again, all of it keeps you off balance. There is not a standard social interaction that takes place the entire opening sequence. And she's put ill at ease by every character. And so I think we as the audience feel some of that too. There's no moment of comfort. There's no moment of welcome. Or here's this new exciting adventure you're about to start. Everybody's a creep. Or a grotesque. Or a grotesque. Or a big jerk. And I think that echoes back to the original intention of the screenplay, which was co-written by Dario Argento and Daria Nicolodi. The inspiration for this story came from a tale that Daria Nicolodi's grandmother told her about her own experience of fleeing a dancing school that had some sinister happenings. And... Daria Nicolodi took that inspiration and a number of other inspirations. We talked about the three mothers, and that comes in part from Thomas de Quincey writings mm. as well. So she took these inspirations and thought about elevating the fairy tale elements of it. And they had originally intended for the film to be acted by eight to 10 year olds. And I think when you watch it, especially the scene when they are getting dressed for class, the sticking the tongues out, that thing. That and calling names and talking about, can I borrow your shoes or not? It comes off as something very adolescent, I think. Or even pre-adolescent. Mm -hmm. But they clearly didn't take that inspiration. Um, the producers thought maybe it wouldn't play as well, especially putting very young children in extreme danger. Can you like imagine this? how dark that would have been if this had been children? People can't see you shaking your head. No, I'm trying to think of where I want to go. <laughs> okay, sorry. sorry. But then you can edit that out and it's me actually responding to you. Okay. Um, no. <laughs> For you. No, I cannot imagine that. I can't imagine the mortal peril that many of these characters are in, knowingly or unknowingly, having that fate thrust upon very small children. So we're dealing instead with grown young women who are now preparing for class. Susie's first day at school, essentially. It's not a great first day of school. 
Susie gets sick and collapses in the middle of her first class, blood running from her nose and her mouth. The implication being from a previous scene that the cook at the school has cast a spell on her or poisoned her, possibly. And I want to jump in here with some more discussion about color. Okay. The first scene where she is going down the hallway, and we're also hearing that the rooms have different colors Mm -hmm. as well that they're referred to. And this is when we start to see a more fleshed out view of the school itself. And also from the beginning, Susie was in white. Her traveling suit was white. Her colors that keep recurring are white or black, as in her, uh, her leotard. Her leotard, and then gold is her other major color. The scene that's very interesting to me is when she is getting sick. You can see the blood drain from her face. It's really effective use of makeup and lighting, and it's very natural actually when compared to every other character. And the rest of the film, Susie is the person who is the most natural and realistic looking. She doesn't have hair colors that you don't necessarily see in real life. She's not covered in makeup. And as I mentioned, the white and the gold and the black are the more neutral, matted tones. And everyone else has a different color story. And she stays that way throughout the film. That color scheme and her separation from the other girls and the way that she's photographed and lit implies to me at least that in a way that the other girls have been assimilated by the school, have been taken over by the school, it never happens to her. She remains on the outside free of its influence. So though she hasn't been assimilated into this population essentially, she is ill and she's being cared for and living there at the school, which leads to the next assault on our senses which is a rain of maggots from the ceiling that are apparently coming from a crate of rotten imported food that has been stored in the attic. That's where I keep my rotting imported food. (laughs) This is one of those instances in the film that serves to underline the dreamlike nightmare logic. It doesn't necessarily advance the narrative. It's more about setting up a dreadful atmosphere where... You never know what odd, disgusting thing might come from above, below, around a corner. You don't know what peculiar threat might be coming next. And you don't know what possible odd, disgusting noise you're going to hear in the underscoring this time as they get all moved into the gymnasium to sleep because they can't sleep in their rooms. You hear the that heavy snoring and grunting and chanting and screaming and whispering in the red backdrop behind them. That slumber party looks more like they're in an asylum or some sort of diabolical maternity ward. Half slumber party, half abattoir party, maybe. You go to a lot of those? No, because they're gross. (laughs) And I noticed something else here. Along with the odd grunting or the constant whispering or screaming or witch or whatever it might be, it struck me here that this film feels so much like theater to me from the aspects of there are no foreign, realistic, ambient noises. At no point do we feel like we're actually in a city that's populated. At least it didn't to Mm -hmm. me. 
and every element is entirely controlled and there are light patterns and even gobos used and it's all so unrealistic and feels set bound though it doesn't feel stage bound in terms of static or slow boring movement no the camera movement is fantastic and it is it is hardly static that's for sure there is one sequence though that stands in direct opposition to all of that and that is when Daniel, the blind pianist who works at the academy, who is fired because his seeing eye dog attacks Albert, that creepy little Lord Fauntleroy. I didn't know that was his name. Good a, to know. It's a, isn't it the perfect name for that little chump? Yeah. When Daniel is killed, it happens in the town square after he has been at a sort of October festy celebration the one instance that you see people who are not associated with the school. The one instance where you see a location that's not a set, that is not one of these hyper-stylized apartments or school rooms. But there's still a distinct lack of anyone else around when he steps out into this town square. There's no one around. There's no noise. And so it does feel almost like a set, even though it's clearly not. Again, we have this theme of vision betraying the seeker because in this instance, his seeing eye dog, the actual instrument that he uses to navigate is the thing that rips his throat out. So we have three characters that are dead now, either by virtue of being betrayed by their vision, for whom illumination does nothing, or at the very least, the third sort of bystander character literally murdered by a beam splitting her head into bisecting her vision. God, it's awful. Even with that, back at the Academy, Sarah has learned nothing from this. Correct. And continues with her search for more knowledge and illumination as to what exactly is happening here. So Sarah's not going to be around for very long. It doesn't take long for this unseen figure to begin stalking her with... First, a straight razor trying to undo the latch of the door that she has locked with this really penetrating, suggestive, repeated thrusting motion through the slot in the door to raise the bar on the latch. And I know I've said in previous episodes, straight razor is the worst, most frightening (laughs) weapon. I take it back because after the straight razor shows up, We then graduate to ten times that with a room full of razor wire, which Sarah falls into like it's a ball pit on a playground. And that part of that sequence, at least to me, seems like it goes on forever when she is struggling to crawl through an ocean of razor wire to get to the other end, only to meet the straight razor again. Is there anything you can think of worse to fill a room with? A spare storeroom? Then razor wire? Um, cat pee. <laughs> cat pee on razor wire? Oh, God. No, I did just think of something worse, and now it's in my head, and I want to stop recording and go hide under the covers. What is it? Sloths. <laughs> Sloths are scary? Yes. I, let's stop. I, seriously, let's stop talking about it because it's making me upset. I'm moving very slowly. Shut up. Stop it. 
at least you can get away. Unless it's one of those really fast sloths. <laughs> so a sloth with a well, straight razor. Okay. Though, if you've been chased by the straight razor and you've fallen into the razor wire and there's sloths in there, you can't get away from those sloths then. Okay. Cut to the next scene. <laughs> Sunrise on a sloth-free day. Yes, thank God. It's all sunny again. We've just gone from this major brutality. Susie doesn't know what's happened. Sarah's disappearance has been explained by, well, she just left. But Susie is concerned. So she seeks out a friend of Sarah's to try to find an explanation as to where she's gone. Is she okay? What's happening? So Susie contacts Udo Kier, who is a friend of Sarah's, and she goes to meet him at a psychiatric convention where she gets two perspectives on her problem. She goes to ask about witchcraft, essentially, and Udo Kier's character, being the young rationalist, basically writes witchcraft off as a manifestation of mental illness. But he then introduces her to an older, possibly wiser colleague of his, who has been around more, seen more things, and who specializes in the subject. And that professor, in the scene that we played in the opening of the show, suggests to her that rationality might not be the greatest ally in this case. When you are dealing with folk tales and fairy tales, it might be a better idea if you operate by that logic, if you accept those as the ground rules. And he coincidentally mentions to her in passing that if you kill the head witch, cut off the head, the rest of the snake dies, essentially. Good to know. Put that in your back pocket. So Susie takes this knowledge, goes back to the academy, where she soon discovers that it is indeed run by a coven of witches who are planning to murder her. She finds Sarah nailed to a coffin. Her eyes gone, sightless. And we finally meet the headmistress, the leader of the coven, Helena Marcos, who is a legendary witch. And Susie, taking her cue from what the professor told her, manages to stab her. Yes, she's stabbed through the neck. Demonstrating, cut off the head, the body dies. The coven begins to essentially disintegrate and the school goes up in flames. And Susie then walks out into a bright, shiny new day. The end. The end. So this was the second time you saw it, when we watched it in preparation for this episode. Between the first time you saw it and the second time you saw it, did your perception of it change? What do you remember from viewing to viewing? What impressions did it leave you with? I realized going into the second viewing that I really didn't recall a lot of details from the first viewing, including that there were witches involved. Not because it's not visually stunning or impressive, but because of the ephemeral nature of the story? I guess so. I didn't recall what in other films might be actual plot devices. This isn't a film that seems to be, okay, this person does this, which then sets off this course of action. It's really not about that. You don't have to sit there and take notes and track what character is doing what action. It's not that. It's much more impressionistic, I think. Now, then, what does that say about me that I didn't really recall a lot from the first to the second viewing? What I did recall was the score and the use of color. Those big pieces, the style, the hyper style, stayed with me. 
so it feels almost like it's beyond plot or beyond language because to me there are a ton of sequences in it especially the murder set pieces that are so stylized that they occur maybe even at the cost of story narratively do these sequences even need to be in the film do you think I think in particular Daniel's murder the entire character of Daniel could be excised and we wouldn't really feel the difference. So the notion that these characters are being dispatched doesn't raise the stakes in any meaningful way? Because they're happening outside of anyone else's knowledge who could do something about them, hmm. who could do something positive about them. The witches know what's happening. The staff knows what's happening. Sarah doesn't know what's happening until she puts some pieces together. Susie doesn't know what's happening until the very end and she is she overhears that they want to murder her she doesn't put her nancy drew cap on and figure it out so they don't exist as a demonstrable consequence of any action that the that the murdered party took and we've mentioned or i have almost jokingly the brutality happens and then it's literally a brand new day and usually morning time that we pick up the story again so what is the total consequence of the brutality to the characters upon whom you would imagine it would have an effect? It's much more indirect. It's the effect to the audience, mm -hmm. not the quote-unquote main character. And in not recalling these huge elements from one viewing to the next, yet the film is resonant. And that feels like a unique thing to me. It's a film that I remember, but pieces of it are not necessarily memorable. Remember it almost like a dream. I remember the mood of it. I remember the feel of it. The first time I saw it, it was unlike anything I had ever seen. With the second viewing, though, it doesn't strike you that way anymore? The second viewing came around the time of a little mini odyssey for you and I where I got introduced to a number of other films in generally the same genre of giallo and so I got exposed to more things and it didn't seem quite as unique because I hadn't been exposed to these other things. Two things you said there stick out to me how it was unlike anything you've ever seen. One aspect for me, that still strikes me that way, is how female-centric it is. I don't know of very many significant world cinema horror classics in which the majority of the characters are women, especially the characters that wield the most significant power. Typically, in American films especially, you might have a really strong final girl, but you don't often see entire casts of protagonists and antagonists that are that often majority female. And in this, Susie wields the final power, but it doesn't feel as though throughout she has a significant amount of power. That definitely lies with the antagonists. Right. The other women are exerting their malicious will the entire time, either controlling or dispatching the minor male characters in the film. Which is also something that feels quite unique to me. We talked again about how story is not necessarily the thing in this film. 
So Susie is not driving the action. She is sometimes reacting or is completely unconscious to the fact that there are these other forces happening. Which again comes back to the fairy tale element. Generation after generation of witches and wicked queens. The other thing you mentioned in that that I thought was interesting is the film's connections to the genre of giallo films. Which is something that I had to have you explain to me. It wasn't something I was overly familiar with before this. For the uninitiated, giallo is basically a very Italian strain of psychological thriller slash murder movie in which you often see from the perspective of an unseen black leather gloved homicidal maniac that has a lot of hyper stylized elements in it. And the films are defined often as much by the fashion and style of the action as much as they are the murders that take place, as much as they are about the crime element of the picture. The term giallo actually translates as yellow, which refers to the color of the pulpy paperbacks that were the origin of this type of crime story in Italy. Paperbacks you could pick up anywhere that are full of cheap, lurid thrills that were easily recognizable by the yellow color. Did Suspiria fall strictly into the giallo category? Strictly? Absolutely not. I think what disqualifies it are the supernatural elements. Seldom in a true giallo is the killer revealed to be any sort of supernatural entity. And what is Dario Argento's connection to giallo? He has made some of the greatest of all time. Four Flies on Grey Velvet and one of my absolute favorites, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Yeah, I don't think Suspiria qualifies entirely, but there are elements of it that do leak into those murder sequences. And I refer to this mini odyssey that we've been on, where you had shown me a number of these films that could fall into that category or into the broader 70s European sleaze as well. So we've been watching a lot of these things, and Suspiria still stands above everything that I've seen recently. It aspires to greater things, I feel like in the standard sort of pot-boiler, giallo, European exploitation films often do. And even as, as wonderful as some of those looked, this is incredible. There are a lot of good reasons why this is considered a milestone of international horror cinema and European exploitation films. The main reason it's such a success is because of the unparalleled mood and atmosphere. That's not all it is, but that's arguably when it's the most effective, when it's focusing on those elements. And why those elements resonated with me, even as plot fell away. Yes, those elements, that atmosphere generates such an irrational anxiety with all of its arterial reds and venous blues that the mood is inescapable. It's unparalleled success in achieving this mood and atmosphere is that why you chose this for the podcast? In a roundabout way, it's part of one reason. I chose it for two reasons, basically. The first one being, associated with your question, is that I don't often watch films for comfort, 
in the same way I think a lot of other people do. I'm looking for something disquieting, something that is provocative. And this operates on all those levels. Even when it comes to the sound, I think the best way to watch this thing is with the sound turned up to punishingly loud levels. The story goes that Dario Argento played the soundtrack while they were filming the movie at the loudest level that he could get to put everyone off and give them a sense of what was really happening and have them react to it subconsciously. That is a brilliant idea. Yes, I think you should watch this as brightly and loudly as possible for maximum effect. The second reason is that I really want to use this to make a case for the validity of low art. Vulgar art, even, in fact. And what do you mean by vulgar art? What I'm talking about is illustrated, I think, by a shift in attitude from Luciano Tavoli himself, the cinematographer of the film. There are two quotes of his that I think are really interesting. He talks about when he first started that he and a classmate made a pact to never abandon the marvelous religion of real light. And by the time we get to 1977, that, after watching this, you realize is clearly in Tavoli's rearview mirror. He has long since abandoned that devotion to that ideal. And he later said, and this is my favorite thing that I found in researching his career and his general philosophy, I like films that are surprising and provocative, that take risks with their visual solutions, and that might be judged as the fruit of bad taste. I hate films that travel on an easy wave of good taste. For me, that is simply anti-culture. Me too, Luciano. (laughs) And I would go further than that even, not just visual solutions. I want things to be risky in every facet. Those are the things that I'm the most excited about. And I think it's just as valid when those things are unrefined, which is what I mean by vulgar. I don't mean, I don't mean things that are engineered for mass appeal when I say low art. And I'm assuming you also don't mean geared to the lowest common denominator. No, not at all. I'm talking about outsiders, perverts, weirdos. Those are the people that I want to stand up for. And this film was a gateway for me to all of those things. Do you remember when you saw it the first time? I do. I rented it from Showbiz Video in Stillwater, Oklahoma. In that time, right after I had gone to college and had access to things beyond my small town Oklahoma video store for the first time. And it was a revelation then, and it opened a whole lot of doors, exposed me to a ton of other Euro sleaze and other exploitation things that I might not have ever discovered otherwise. In the 18th century, you had this argument about high and low art. Art versus craft, art for art's sake, all those sorts of things. And now that we are no longer dependent on craft for the things that we need to live day to day, furniture, all sorts of other goods that are mass produced, that we don't spend hours and hours making ourselves, we have a lot more time and the luxury of breaking these distinctions down even further. How art is a quasi-religious thing for some people. All of these artificial and subjective binaries, good versus bad art. 
art versus non-art, pop art versus low art, and the difference between all these hairs that people split that I think one side is trying to invalidate the other with that I don't know that I necessarily believe in. Even within pop art itself, the notion of subculture versus mainstream, who's a sellout and who isn't, those arguments that we could have forever. Basically what I'm shooting for <laughs> with this choice is that notion of rejecting high art, quote unquote, that is banal and mediocre in favor of passionately devoted outsiders whose technique is, again, unrefined. People specifically that I'm thinking about, like Jess Franco, John Rollin, John Waters, the Kukar brothers, people who are making really idiosyncratic and interesting things and are not tethered to traditional ideas of what is quality art. So this choice is a declaration, basically, of my love for those weirdos and outsiders that make things that no one else could make. You mentioned that Suspiria opened some doors for you to find many other wonderful discoveries. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned as well before that we have been watching a number of other things that are sort of related or in similar genres to this. And I'm thinking specifically of, I watched a little bit of Sinner with you and Your Vice is a Locked Room and I Have the Only Key and Lizard in a Woman's Skin. So I have a very important question for you. Okay, shoot. For Suspiria, to a lesser extent though, I'm thinking of these other films that probably fall more in a sleaze category or mm -hmm. exploitation category. Right. Am I not supposed to get really turned on by all of it? Because for the most part, everyone's hair looks wonderful. <laughs> They're all gorgeous and everybody's naked and it's fun. And does that make me a pervert? Does that make me God, the I pervert so. who's watching through the, the wall in half of these movies? through some sort of carved out hole and watching other people do it in crazy ways. Does that make me into that gross comb over person? No, not at all. That's what they're made for. If these auteurs, and I really do believe that that's what they are. Agreed. Are celebrating a very particular thing that moves them. And in some cases, that's butts. Right. <laughs> Nuns, butts, maybe. <laughs> I. That's very specific subgenre. Yeah. But yeah. yes, that is exactly right. There's absolutely nothing wrong with celebrating that. That is, in fact, how they want you to feel. Okay. So my monocle is not supposed to be firmly in place this whole time. No. It was supposed to pop out, and I was supposed to have a really fun time with some of these things. I would wholeheartedly agree. Okay. If you're not, then you're doing it wrong. Speaking of great discoveries and unlocking doors... This would be an apt time to make a recommendation for someone to do just that very thing. So what do you have for us this time? I got inspired by the nightmare logic. And that led me to my recommendation of A Quiet Place in the Country from 1968, starring Franco Nero and Vanessa Redgrave, directed by Elio Petri, who also directed one of mm. our favorites, <laughs> Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. 
And this is the story of Franco Nero, who is a popular painter, but he is plagued by these nightmares that he is engaging in these bizarre acts that are sexual or murderous or have all other sort of paranoiac feelings and implications. And to escape this, he leaves the city and rents the titular house in the country. That is a fantastic choice. And what is your recommendation? For my recommendation, I'm sticking with that theme of sensory overload with giallo overtones. I am selecting this time The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears by Helena Catet and Bruno Forzani from 2013. If you enjoy the color and the sound design and the murder of Suspiria, it's a really interesting 21st century update on some of those themes. The sound design of The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears is completely enveloping and intriguing, and the use of color in the thing is just outstanding. It might not be the greatest film ever, but it is really interesting in terms of following the continuum of this style of filmmaking. It's very interesting to see that get updated by a filmmaking team that clearly loves the genre. Are there butts in it? <laughs> I don't want to spoil the surprise for anyone, but maybe. There are butts in mine, so <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> And we've got two great recommendations again, The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears and A Quiet Place in the Country. Oh, I should also mention that The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears also continues with that tradition of Jalo having the greatest titles. It does. In cinema. Which brings us to the end of episode 15. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast and that will get you to our group. We're on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. I wanted to say thanks to the people who have been tweeting about the show, sharing links, getting in touch with us since our last episode. Specifically, our friends at Fuds on Film, Matteo Boscaro, Grindhouse Dave and Jeff Duncanson as always. And I would like to say a very special thanks to the people at Olive Films who were very nice and had a lot of complimentary things to say about our previous episode about their latest release of Let There Be Light, John Houston's wartime documentaries. It was very nice of them to even go to the trouble to get in touch with us and tell people about our podcast. We really, really appreciate it. We are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. One click gets you subscribed to our feed, which makes sure that we just automatically show up for you every other Monday. While you're there, if you could leave us a review and a rating, we would certainly appreciate it. Anytime you do that, it helps get the show in front of more people. And we also have a website where you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 